wish to welcome you all to the service this morning. It's uh, a privilege to be together and, and worship our, our great God. I enjoyed the Sunday school lesson. It was challenging to me to think of how strong, how powerful God is that not only did he set into motion the laws as we know them and deal with, but he also has the power to intervene with those laws and to override them and to move in his own ways. Uh, like was mentioned this morning in the Sunday uh, in the uh, devotional that Greg had, how that you know he he didn't make a mistake when he uh, told the children of Israel to head off and be trapped in between the sea and the mountain. He didn't make a mistake and then pull out another card to play. He had that all planned. You know, he was going to have honor on the Egyptians. That's That to me I find uh, inspiring to know that I serve a great God like that. This morning, uh, the message title is Fighting the Philistines. And it's taken out of 1 Samuel 17. You may want to open your Bible to the text, 1 Samuel 17. I was writing, I get to do a fair amount of that, being uh, one of our jobs about an hour away from home. And, and so um, after I listened to the morning news, and which is consists of NPR, and then listened to a bit of more of the right wing, and then listened to the evangelicals a bit, then I like to uh, listen to... Uh, Listen to the word. I have a CD on. I have Bible on CD, and it's I enjoy putting a, a CD in and just listening to the word to to balance. Try to balance all these different uh, voices out. Not to say that I end up perfect, but it is. It certainly listening to the word brings everything into perspective. I was listening to a story. Well, I was listening to the word in, 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 in this uh, uh, chapter 17 came up. I, I was in First Samuel and I listened to this story of David and Goliath. And, and uh, I did something I usually don't do. I reversed the track again. I listened to the story again and uh, did something I usually don't do and reversed the track again. I think I listened to it four times. And by the time I listened to it the fourth time, I was like, you know, uh, it's about my turn. I, to, it's about my turn to be able to preach on this subject. So uh, I, it is an inspiring story. And David and the Philistines. Um, I want to look at it. And as we look at this, this passage, I would like for you to, to be thinking, um, what... Are the challenges you're facing? Do you have uh, a big bad Goliath that intimidates you? Is there something intimidating you? Are there maybe lions or bears that would make you frightened, or even threaten to steal your sheep or those things you have charge of? So let's, let's look at this. Let's read this passage. And as we read it, I'll, I'll be commenting on it. Uh, I'm reading it out of the New King James Version. 
1 Samuel 17, and starting with verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered together at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now this is somewhat of a safety factor, especially if you think that they didn't have AK-47s or Scud missiles or you know high-tech missiles. If you have an army on one side and you have an army on the other side, uh, probably the best, you know, the closest thing of of, of uh, being able to do damages would be bow and arrow. And I'm not sure how advanced they were. I don't think they had uh, compound bows at that time, so they were probably fairly safe there to kind of shout at each other and try to intimidate each other. There was a valley between them and a champion. This champion wasn't on Israel's side. A champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, based on a cubit, and a lot of my research is all credit to Adam Clark, the research he did, but the based on the cubit, uh, he would point out that Goliath would have had to been at a minimum of nine foot, nine inches tall, and may have been as tall as 11 foot, three inches, according to how cubits were measured at that time. So here was a big man. Uh, I'm six foot one, and, you know, occasionally I'll meet people that are six foot five or six foot six, and and I think, well, that's a big man. Well, imagine seeing someone in front of you nine foot nine, or, you know, that would pretty much hit that ceiling. And, and he, he was a man that was not just, um, you know, that was a, uh, somehow his hormones had gotten away and he was all disjointed and so forth. He was a man, he was a fighting machine. This guy, he was collected. He was, you know, they put him at the forefront of the battles. This was a guy who, who, who could do damage. Um, he had a bronze helmet on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. This weight translates to between, uh, to probably around 220 pounds, 250 pounds. Uh, 5,000 shekels of bronze. So you imagine that you had this mail coat it was kind of, if you know what an armadillo is and seen their, how their coat interlocks. I don't know how many of you have seen this, but in, in Europe, in some of the castles we toured, we saw these mail, coats made of mail, and it's uh, these little pieces of, of steel overlapping each other. So he wore this on him. Uh, he had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Um, the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, which translates to roughly 18 to 20 pounds. Now, that, that's, a, that's a big spearhead. I mean, really, stop and think about it. You see these little, I've seen Indian arrowheads, and you, know, they, you can easily hold them. They don't weigh more than a few ounces. You, know, you get a pound, take a pound, or you take five pounds of meat, for example, or a, a turkey, Grab a you know a turkey that's a ten pound turkey, uh, or fifteen pound. You take a twenty pound turkey, 
uh, carry that around or think of it as being the, the head of, on, on the end of your, your spear, you get the, the idea of how, what kind of muscle this, my, this guy must have had. I mean, he was able to project something very large. Uh, a shield bearer went before him. Uh, I believe Goliath was an important asset to the Philistines here. They, they had him covered. They wanted people around him that would, that would uh, cover for him. Um, he was a fighting machine that, that merited support. Okay, so we have this big guy here, big, bad guy. And uh, he stands out in verse 8 and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you the servants of Saul? Now the Targum... Andrew, Adam Clark cites the Targum, which is a, an Arab translation of the early Hebrew writers. And, and they, they enlarge on this verse. And I'd like to read what they say. I, a Philistine, Goliath speaking, I am Goliath, the Philistine of Gath, who killed the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priest, and led into captivity the Ark of the Covenant of Yahu, and placed it in the temple of Deg and my God, and it remained in the cities of the Philistines seven months. Also in all our battles, I've gone at the head of the army and we conquered and cut down men and laid them as low as the dust of the earth. And to this day, the Philistines have not granted me the honor of being chief of a thousand men. And ye, men of Israel, what noble exploit has Saul, the son of Kish of Gibeah, done that you should have made him king over you? It's a serious dig here. If, if, Goliath truly said this, which he, it's very possible this is be historical writings. It's a very serious dig here at, uh, at Saul. If Saul's a hero, if he's worthy of, of being your leader, let him come down himself and fight with me. But if he be a weak and cowardly man, then choose ye out a man that he may come down to me. He was basically trying to undermine Saul and, and, and get them to send somebody out that's, that would truly be a match for him and, and in turn undermine their loyalty, uh, take away their national pride. I, according to these verses and according to the way the Israelites responded, Goliath was most likely well known prior to this battle. Prior to this battle, he had probably had a good reputation. He was damaging no doubt many of uh, Israelite family had lost a father, a son, husband, or a beloved due to this champion of the Philistines. He was a widow maker, if you want to put it that way. He, he, he did a lot of damage to the Israelites. He had never been effectively dealt with. He was, you may say, the Israelites' worst dream. He reappeared at the most inopportune times. Goliaths are like that, aren't they? They destroy Goliaths intimidate, they ruin the peace. Goliaths ruin productivity. Men that should have been working at their farms were instead being paralyzed on this other hill by this great evil man. Goliaths aim to steal loyalty away from the rightful leader. And Goliaths attempt to set the tone and the conditions for battle. He says this, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. 
But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall you be our servants and serve us. Choose your man. These are the conditions he says. Choose your man, send him down. Whoever beats will have symbolically won the war. Spoils go to the winners. And you know, it would seem like a much more humane method of warfare. Okay, send two of the best together. Whoever beats the other one's their servant and we're done. We don't have all this bloodshed. But then look at the other part of this. Uh, uh, he, he set he set the he set this covenant out ahead. You know, whoever beats uh, the other party will be their the the winner's servants. Well, they don't seem to remember this uh, part of the covenant afterwards. If you'll if you'll note, the shouting begins, the derogatory comments, the cursing, the derision. Verse ten: The Philistines said, "I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man." Give me a man that we may fight together. When Solomon and all the Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They didn't have a man. In their opinion, they didn't have a man. They didn't have anyone that stood nine foot nine inches tall. They had a spearhead that was weighed 18 to 20 pounds. They didn't have a man that, could, that was so big that he could just intimidate other people. So then we enter into another phase of the story. Enter David. Verse 12. David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, 40 days of this intimidation, 40 days of this trying to, this psychological warfare, if you were, trying to knock the, the confidence out of the Israelites. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news to them. Now Saul and they all, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines, or rather, maybe shouting at the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him and came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. So we have here the battle of psychological warfare. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in a battle array, army against army. A conventional head-on battle. Winner takes the spoils. More like a game then than battles are today. You know, that, those battles were more like a, a game with stakes that were much higher than games are of today. And David left his supplies in the hand of the keeper, ran to the army, came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard him, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. 
I imagine that getting thumped by Saul or by Goliath was kind of like getting thumped by a scud missile of today. You know, once that spear hit you, you were pretty much gone. And so they were dreadfully afraid of this man. Maybe they had their skirmishes where they were Philistines and Israelites kind of fought. And then when things got a little bit too heated, why they'd send Goliath down there to, to break up the fight or to show the Israelites what to do. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and he shall be. And it shall be that the man who kills him, speaking of Goliath, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard what he had, when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Little shepherd boy, what are you doing out here in the man's world? And yes, what about those sheep you're supposed to be watching? I know your pride and insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? I can see this coming from David. What have I done? Really, isn't there a reason for me to be here? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Now, there's something somewhat curious in this story. And that is, is that Saul doesn't really seem to know David. I don't know exactly why that would have been. Uh, David had been with Saul for some time now. If you follow that story back, uh, Saul, of course, had disobeyed God a number of times. At this time, at this point already, David had been anointed king, and uh, Saul, uh, Samuel, had anointed David. So, and and David had been called into the court to to play instrument for Saul when whenever the evil spirit would come and and uh, and uh, cause cause Saul to be depressed and so forth. David would play for him. Well, it seems like somehow there was a disconnect uh, that Saul didn't really know David. And, and we'll see that as we read on. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. So David comes in here with a very positive message. Just kind of nobody comes up, this youth. And he gives this very positive message. Uh, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. David offers himself to confront this mighty, evil, profane, and blasphemous uh, giant. And Saul discourages him. He says, uh, says this, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you, you're, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. So, He's telling David here, you're still green. You're still a kid. Uh, this man, you know, has been fighting for years and he's a man of war from his youth and you're just a youth. How are you going to go face him? This is, you don't understand the enormity of the situation you're facing. I suppose maybe Saul was thinking that if they wait out 
the Philistines long enough, the Philistines would go away. I don't know. But uh, Saul wasn't, you know, ready to go out and fight him himself. I'd like to go and draw a parallel here, or draw a verse out of the New Testament. 1 Timothy 4.12 says this, Paul speaking to Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word and conversation and charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. I'd like to look at that a bit, bring a New Testament context into this uh, content. Uh, so we have Timothy, or Paul telling Timothy, don't let any men despise your youth. We have this giant here. He's great, he's big, he's bad, he's blasphemous, and he's a killer. And we have David here. He's but a youth. He's but a, a young man. And, and so physically speaking, uh, there's not a lot going to happen here except a young man's going to lose his life if you look at it from the physical dynamics, right? But Timothy, uh, Paul tells Timothy here, he says, don't let any man despise your youth. And, and that's a word to you young men and young women here, to all of us. Uh, don't let any man despise your youth. Uh, David had something more going for him than what Saul realized. David had been anointed. David had the unction of God in his life. And this was a battle God had prepared him for. So we go on to verse 34. And before we go into that, I'd like to, to present it this way. David looks back to face ahead. David looks back to face ahead. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took the lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Here David displays his shepherd heart. When the beast invaded my flock, I protected them. If, we, if we'd stop reading just, you know, right here, we could think, well, David was kind of a proud young man. But let's go on and read verse, the next verse. And notice to, to who David credits the glory for his extraordinary exploits. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. There's a real faith and certitude here uh, demonstrated in this statement. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Saul gives his blessing. Knowingly, Saul gives David his blessing to kill this troublesome giant. Unknowingly, to Saul and David, I believe, to David as well, David receives Saul's blessing to deliver a mortal wound to Saul's kingdom as well. Verse 38, so Saul clothed David with his armor and he put on his bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed them with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk. For he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. 
Probably Saul's armor here weighed as much as 120 pounds. If Goliath weighed 260, we could deduce probably uh, Saul's is maybe half of that or, or somewhere in there. So let's say 175 to 120 pounds. And, uh, you know, David, he, he just didn't feel right to him. He wisely declined to, let's say in my words, lug the desktop computer with the large screen into his meeting with Goliath. He needed something that would be nimble and work for him. And he wisely relied on God to deliver him. Wisely relied on the weapons that he was familiar with. He then goes after these weapons that he feels comfortable with. Uh, in verse 40, he took the staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in his shepherd's bag in a pouch, which he had, and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near the Philistine. Go back again to that verse. Let no man despise thy youth. There's a, a little quote that I read here recently that's kept coming to my mind. It was out of one of the books that uh, the boys were reading. It's about the centipede. Very short, but it has a, a good lesson in it. A centipede was happy quite until a frog in fun said, Pray, which leg comes after which? This roused her mind to such a pitch she lay distracted in the ditch, considering how to run. You get it? A centipede was happy quite until a frog in fun said, Pray, which leg comes after which? This roused her mind to such a pitch she lay distracted in the ditch, considering how to run. You know, there are those people out there that are frogs. Okay, let's not say, call anyone a frog, but who are out there and they're trying to distract other people who are doing what is right. People who will question your faith. People who have allowed themselves to become sidelined by doubt, fear, or unbelief. Cynics, scoffers. Jude talks about these people. People perhaps within your own peer group circle who will question the validity of the word or certain aspects of doctrine and try to put them in a light of, of doubt. People with their own agendas who would propagate their own agendas and their own singular, and I, I'd like to put an emphasis on this word, their own singular interpretation of the Bible or their own agenda, their own, maybe propagate their own hero's interpretation of the Bible. Let no man despise your youth. We have the Bible. It's very clear. We have the word that's clear. Uh, don't let someone uh, try to supersede that with a, with a uh, clever argument or with a more, if you will, intellectual argument. The Bible stands on itself and we can read that and we can, we can follow it with certitude. Don't put on or trust the armor of a scoffer. Only use weapons that are tested from the Bible, easily understood from the Bible. And I would add this. We have the benefit of using weapons that have been visibly demonstrated by godly people 
around us. That's a real, real asset for those of us who have grown up in, in the circle of, of a godly people, godly friends, godly parents, uh, godly environment. So anyways, on to this about David, verse 40. So he picks out these stones. He collects his ammunition on the run, five smooth stones. That's it. And I don't think he was there just quickly grabbing up a bunch of rocks. He was looking for the right rocks. He, he, he knew what he was looking for. He was, they said that uh, the research that I read uh, that Adam Clark had done, they, they, there's a certain group of people that still use these slings, and they have three lengths. One's short, one's longer, one's longer. And they say that the, these slings, uh, and there's, there's people that still use them there in the, the Eastern or Middle East, uh, are, are strong enough to project a rock and they, that, that will, uh, will easily penetrate uh, even through mail or like this, you know, like uh, this coat that Goliath was wearing. Um, especially the long ones, they say when they're using them on, on long shots, they can get a lot of distance and, a, and really good velocity out of those. They're a formidable weapon. Well, evidently Goliath wasn't real familiar with those. Doesn't seem like here. Um, he collected these rocks, um, and I believe he collected them in a, a calm and collected manner. He, he knew what he was looking for. He knew what he was up against. He wasn't running into this, you know, to whatever come. He was into this to, to win. He was planning on bringing this Goliath down. And, and he, you know, he wasn't there just to, to make a hero or martyr of himself. He, he knew what he was about. At this point, the Philistine, Goliath, didn't know it, I don't believe. I'm sure he didn't know it. But he was in the wrong business. He was at the wrong side of this epic battle. Verse 41, so the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. You know, the above surprised Goliath. He was probably more used to seeing battle-scarred, dog-eared type of people coming to meet him, not uh, somebody that, uh, you know, is good-looking, used to seeing people missing their front teeth and maybe a patch over an eye and a uh, ear missing, maybe good luck charms hanging all over them, uh, tattoos. That's what he was used to seeing. And here comes this young man, good looking, it says. He may have been hoping his kingly challenge would be answered. You know, I, I beat the best of years and now you'll be mine. Um when he saw young David, young good-looking David, he probably thought he was just being teased by this youth. This other army had put this young man up to a challenge. This young man didn't know what he was taking, and he was just teasing, you know, Goliath. The enemy was just testing his strength or making fun of him. He disdained him. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So here's where the New Testament Christian stops reading. It gets gory after this. I'm telling you. It just gets too gory. But I guess we're going to keep on going. 
Uh, no, I shouldn't have said that. The New Testament Christian keeps on reading, but he reads it in a New Testament light. Uh, it does get gory. Goliath has out the support of the big guns. You know, he has his support. He has his big guns. And here's little David with his staff and with his sling. Goliath's not happy. You know, what will his peers say to him about bringing home a squirrel? I, I imagine that's what he's thinking. And he begins the prelude. He shouts at the lad. Maybe he's thinking the lad will get scared and run home and spare him from having to polish his sword again. He insults the lad by his gods, by cursing him by his gods. Perhaps that'll shake the lad's faith in the, su in the supernatural. He informs the lad of his intent. The winner takes no captives in this deal. And Goliath has no doubt who's going to be the winner. The good-looking young man has, uh, David, he's not intimidated. Note to the young men here, you don't have to be bad-looking to be uh, effective. Good-looking young men are still needed. In the face of this great, big, formidable, and bad-looking Goliath, the man with the reputation of making widows in Israel, you know, he's, he's articulated the battle. This young lad comes forward and he defends his position and he takes the he takes the offense. Listen to what he says to Goliath. You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. In this very Old Testament conflict, David understood a very New Testament principle. The Lord does not save with sword and spear, the battle is the Lord's. Two things here. You have two, new, two New Testament principles that abound in the Old Testament. David also understood what his position was in this epic battle. And when we talk about it, when I use the word epic, I mean it's a something that's retold and told. All of us know have known about the story of David and Goliath from young up. Even you look, you know, there's there's some kind of pizza warfare going on. Um, uh, you know, it's not not with guns and swords, but between, uh, I think it was between Pizza Hut and uh, Papa John's. And they called it the David and Goliath battle because Papa John's was this little pizza place and and uh, Pizza Hut was big. Well, that that's where the word epic comes in here in my mind. You know, that's, this story is known all over the world, David and Goliath. He understood his position in this epic battle out of Zechariah 4.6. Read this verse. This the Lord will give you into my hand, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Then, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So then we have the battle. The Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. 
Then David put his hand in his bag and took out the stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with his sling, with his sling and his stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. So we have David not only mortally wounding this Philistine, but he also cuts his, his head off. And, and later on, we'll see that he carries it away. But I think there's a spiritual application here. And that is when we meet those Goliaths and they're not going to be big, bad Goliaths in a visual or a physical sense, maybe like David meant. But we don't always we don't just need to bring them down, but we need to cut off their heads. We need to get rid of them. Something that's that's uh, intimidating us or standing between us and God. We need to get we don't need to just knock it out, but we need to get rid of it or else it will pop back up again. Now the men of Israel and Judah rose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley into the gates of Akron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharon, even as far as Gath and Akron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his own tent. I'd like to comment a bit here on this battle now. Draw some New Testament application from it, some more. Our fights, again, with Goliath, they may not be as epic. They may not be as pivotal to a nation, but they're real, aren't they? I mean, we, we really do face Goliaths in our own lives. Um, we face the lions, we face the bears. And and these fights that we face, they're, they're fights that need to be fought, not haphazardly. They don't need to be fought just so that we can be a martyr or whatever. But these, these are fights that need to be fought and they need to be fought and won. Uh, we, we, we need it for ourselves, we need it for our families, those around us. Those opposing giants are not going to go away until they've been dealt with, until they've been knocked down and their heads cut off. Living in the New Testament, the Philistines we face tend to be of the spiritual nature. Ephesians 6.12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You know today what is your Goliath. I know what is mine. And maybe there are Goliaths we don't even know about that God's going to reveal to us that he's going to have us face when the time is right. Many times for me, and I'm sure it's been, would be the same case for many of you, it would be easier maybe, more, feel more heroic and seem more patriotic to go out against the fleshly Goliath. But let's not fool ourselves. It takes real strength to fight the Goliaths that come into our lives today that we're faced with. They're just as bad. They're just as big. They're just as blasphemous. And they defy the armies of the living God today just like they did that then. They defy nations. They defy individuals. Facing our Goliaths. How do we do that? Number one, don't doubt God's word. We read that. That's, that was Satan's first trick, wasn't it? 
Yea, hath God said? Hath he said? Really, did he say that? When he's talking to Eve. Hath, is this really what God meant? Take God at his word. It's a long, slippery slope when a man takes on himself to arbitrarily uh, decide what God has said, what he hasn't, what's relevant for society today, what's for another time, what was for the other dispensation. Uh, the serpent uses doubt as its primary tactic. He used doubt on Eve, and it's his primary tactic on us today as well. It's his favorite and most effective tool, I believe. Yea, hath God said, of setting people on the course to unbelief. Number two, be obedient to God's word and godly principle. Way to face Goliath that we meet. It was a lack of obedience on Saul's part that had brought Israel to this point, had brought Israel to the point of becoming a national disaster. Earlier, God had used Saul to bring Israel from up from a national disaster. Now, because of Saul's disobedience at different points, uh, they were back to this point of just being pretty much a national, a non-identity, for lack of better words. And when Saul was confronted with these bad decisions, he whined and he sulked instead of repenting. He, he wasn't ready to meet his own Goliath, his own personal Goliath uh, of disobedience. Learn to know and love God. David was a man after God's own heart, and he was anointed king, not because he had killed Goliath, not because he had killed the bear or the lion, but because he believed God. He had a relationship with God. He reached out to God. God loved him. He loved God, and that's why God chose him to be king over his people. That's why God had him anointed. Be faithful in the little. David was faithful in the mundane. Shepherding sheep is not easy. It's not fun. For as nostalgic as it looks and as fun as it looks to be out in the fields and pastures all day, it's, it's really not. Now, I think shepherds enjoy it after a while, but for most of us, we would not enjoy the life of a shepherd. It, it's hard work. Um, and David faced really a very real danger, even to himself. And he was faithful. David, in facing the Goliaths, he looked back to his past successes. And I'd like to spend a little time here. He remembered God's faithfulness in delivering him from the lion and bear. This deliverance, combined with David's passion for God and his love of Israel, is what gave him the confidence to meet that Philistine, I believe. His, his understanding of God's faithfulness, his passion for his people, and his, his love of God is what gave him the confidence to go up against this giant. And we badly, badly need Davids today of that caliber. Men and women not moved in their faith by the cursing and the blasphemy of, of the towering Philistine giants in our society. Men and women who with quiet confidence can say, how dare you defy the armies of the living God? How dare you say this? Who will push back, not in with sword and not with spear, not with gun, but with the word of God, who will are willing to, with quiet humility and with godly confidence, push back. We badly need Davids today. There's the great enemy, the ultimate Philistine giant. He realizes this as well. 
And he's using it, all the tools at his disposal to shred the Davids. Like we talked about in an earlier sermon, you know, put them through the, the shredder. He's trying to do that with Davids before they become leadership material. Before they get to the point where they can are willing to fight the Philistine, are ready for it. You all know what your Goliaths are, are. And I'd like to spend just a little, a few minutes here yet with the bears and the lions. You know what your lions are and you know what your bears are. And I'm going to throw out some things here. Um, it's not comprehensive. There are bears and lions that are, go much further than this. And, and yours may not lie in any of these places. But just as some thoughts here. Um, I think one of the, some of the bears that we face in a very, very real sense today are the bears of immorality, the, the bears of impurity and lust. The Billboard magazine, book, internet, CD, iPod, MP3 are all places where the bear can stage his attack to cripple and kill the soul, to run the, the, the fledgling David through the shredder before he can get to the place where he can be effective, uh, David that's ready to meet the uh, Philistine. And, and unfortunately, today, these, these bears are channeled. They come, they have an open doorway into our lives that they didn't maybe years ago. Downtown is now audibly and visibly, visibly channeled into our lives. What used to be Sodom and Gomorrah is now promoted by taxpayers' money. And, and is, is uh, you know, are being paid by and being paid and called public servants. Uh, good is called evil and evil is good. And that's truly happened in our society. And our, quote, Christian nation of today. Good is called evil and evil good. We stand in grave danger, I believe, of, of having our spiritual edges sanded, our spiritual sensitivity, the edges of the our spiritual sensitivity sanded to the point where Black is no longer black, and white is no longer white. Light and darkness kind of blend together into a gray. We can't let that happen if we want to be Davids, if we want to raise Davids, if we want to be able to meet the Philistine. He attacks us with the lines of doubt, fear, and unbelief. If the bear of immorality is weakened, is allowed to weaken and distract the Christian, it's not so difficult for the line of unbelief to finish him up. If a man or woman's soul's desire is distracted from the worship and adoration of God, confidence in the providence of God will be diminished and light will grow dim. If man or woman's desire, soul's desire is distracted from its worship and adoration of God by the bear of immorality or the bear of, of uh, any of these other things that Satan would throw away, then unbelief will quickly come in. Really, I think it boils down to whether we're going to be successful or not at facing the big bad giant. Boils down to much more of how successful we've been or are being at facing the bear and the lion. The bear and the and, and really the battles, the size of the battles, they're of the Lord. They really believe it or not, uh, don't matter, I don't think, so much or that much in, in the uh, overall scheme of things. 
it comes down to, to how we battle and where our heart is and if we're effectively fighting that barren line. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, not by might or by power, but my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. We may not be in an epic national battle, but we are all in an epic personal battle, and our story will someday be told. If the personal battle is lost, there will be no standing for facing the large battle, the large national battle. Let's make sure that by the grace of God, we face the lion and the bear and uh, we give God the glory and are willing to, to uh, move ahead as God wills from there. God bless you.